This is such a great story. It's so interesting. If you stop and think about it, like this is so much what we didn't expect, right? Like most people when they came up to Jesus with a need, in fact, everybody else, they came to him, they needed something, they needed healing, they needed something fixed, they needed some, some direction. Like they walked away rejoicing because Jesus met their needs, exceeded their needs. Healing was provided, sight was restored, demons were cast out. Most people come to Jesus with a legitimate need, and Jesus meets those needs. Uh, you have Pharisees, religious leaders that come to Jesus, and they're trying to trick him, they're trying to trap him, and they go away silenced, or they go away angry. But people that come to him wanting answers, and people that come to him needing something, they go away rejoicing. And here's this story, it stands out from all these other stories, because this guy walks away sad. This guy walks away, he came to Jesus with a question, he came to Jesus with knowing he was needing something, knowing he's lacking something, he's missing something, he's trying all this, but he's missing something, and Jesus' reply leaves him still wanting, and he goes away sorrowful. And so that story, just the fact that there's such a difference here, something we don't expect when you're following the life of Jesus, it ought to make us really pay attention. And, and then on top of that, it's kind of confusing if we're honest. If you, I mean, if you understand the gospel... And you know that his question is wrong from the beginning because he says, hey, teacher, what good deed do I need to do in order to inherit and to obtain, earn eternal life? What do I need to do? Where's the checklist? What are the, what are the things I need to do so that I can earn my way into heaven? And if you know the gospel, you know that that's not the gospel, that the Bible teaches us that we can't earn our way to heaven. We can't do anything. There's not a, a list of things. If, you, if you're good enough, if you do enough good deeds, if, you, if your family goes to church, if you're part of the youth group, if you're part of the kids club, if, you're, if you do mission trips, like there's no good deed list that we can do that we can earn our way to heaven. But Jesus' answer surprises us when we first read it because he says, hey, you want eternal life? Keep the commandments. Like, well, that's off script. <laughs> Jesus just went completely off script. That's not the gospel. That's not the answer we expect him to say. But as you go deeper into the story, you realize that Jesus knows what the guy's problem is. He's dealing with this guy directly. And he's going to point out, like, hey, keep the commandments. His, his response is funny, right? Which ones? And Jesus can kind of say all of them. But at first he says, oh, let's talk about these. And he starts talking about all these commandments in the second part of the Ten Commandment list that deal with how we relate to each other. He doesn't talk about the first commandment because he's going there. He doesn't talk about the fact you should have no other gods before me, where it all starts. But that's where he's going. He's setting this guy up to see something really, really important. And so on the surface, it looks like, wait, Jesus is just going, like, did he just create another path? Did he just say, okay, yeah, you can trust in me or you can do these commandments, that's not what Jesus is saying. And so just to make sure we're not confused, even though I feel like we kind of pretty much have that idea, I want to I make a statement just for the clarity to kind of avoid the confusion so we can move on to the actual story. So here's the statement. We don't, we don't earn eternal life through obedience, but we do respond to the gift of eternal life with obedience. We don't earn it. You can't earn it. We know this, the gospel teaches us this, but this guy's approach, and it's the approach of so many people. I don't know you, every single one of you well enough to know if that's not your approach. You may have wandered in here thinking, well, if I go to church, if I do enough good things, if I'm okay, then, then, then if I'm good enough, then, then God will be okay, and I'll get in. That, that approach is, it, it was here, and it was, it's still alive and well today. 
of like, what do I need to do? How good do I need to be? How do I earn my way? The Bible teaches, the gospel teaches, we don't earn eternal life through obedience. In fact, you see it in Jesus' answer. He says, hey, what good thing do I need to do? What good deed? And Jesus says, well, you're talking about good. Let's go ahead and set the bar here. There's only one who's good. He's talking about God. And Jesus says, there's only one who's good. Why? Because goodness is perfection. God's the only one's good. He's perfect. He's holy. He's set apart. He's different. He's righteous. He's without fault, without error. That's what the standard is. And if you understand that God is the only one that's good and you understand the perfection and righteousness that is God, then, then you will understand that there is no way you're going to measure up. And so Jesus is kind of pointing that out. The problem for us, I think, is that we try to change that standard all the time. And maybe not inside here, but like our culture tries to change the standard because we want to believe that we can do something to earn our way. Like that's just kind of the way we see the world. So we don't want to put our trust and faith in Jesus. We want to earn our way. So then we have to go, okay, what's the standard? Well, what good deed, how good do I have to be? And so it's really easy to start that, right? Well, the Bible seems to be silent on that. It's not really, but it seems to be. So let's figure out that standard. And we go, I know what it is, 51%. I mean, it's just got to tip the scales in our favor, right? 51% of your deeds are good, 49 are bad, you're in, you're fine. That's the standard. Like, let's just, let's just go with that. If I, you can just be good one more time than you're bad, then you're fine. But we're like, we don't know that. That's just what the Bible teaches us. What, what if it's a different standard altogether? What if you have to make a 70 or above? Well, you have to be passing. Like, you can't be failing. It's got to be 70% of your life has got to be good in order to get in. What if that's the standard that God's given us? 70%, let's go. What if it's even higher than that? What if God makes, requires an A? What if you've got to make a 90 or above? I mean, it's, it's how you define good. I remember having that conversation with my oldest son when he was in high school. We had to reset our definition of good. Hey, what's, how's your grade in science? It's good. Okay, what is it? 77. All right, hold on. <laughs> Time out. That's, that's not good. So what if it's not just passing? What if it's an A you have to make? That's the standard. 90% of your life has to be good or you're in trouble. What if it's that? What if God grades on a curve and David Watkins has blown it for everyone? I mean, you guys don't know all the things he does behind the scenes up here, but he's always working. Yesterday he's up here. Shannon is with him. You're blowing a curve for us too, putting this new backdrop together. It looks nice, right? You don't give him a hand. He loves it when we do that. Yeah. What if it's that? And he's like, he's making a 98, so we only get two points on our score. Like, he blew it. Thanks. I'm just saying that out loud because I'm trying to, like, take some of his reward so I can visit him in heaven. That'll be good. So what if, like, we don't, we want to take the standard and make it something that we can match, we can, make, we can meet. Like, that's what we want to do. But here's the, what's, what Jesus says, there's only one who's good. God is perfect, righteous, holy, set apart, different. That's the standard. You want to be good? That's your path. You got to be perfect. You got to be righteous. You got to be holy. Which ones do I need to keep? All of them. We don't earn eternal life through obedience. When, when, later on, Jesus is going to turn this conversation. When the guy walks away sad, Jesus turns to the disciples. It's a teaching moment for them. He says, hey, it's really, really hard for a rich person to get into heaven. And he says, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich person to get into heaven. And I don't know if you've been around church long enough to hear the story about how there was a gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle, and it was lower. And if you wanted to go through that gate with your camel, which just doesn't even make sense because there's another gate right around the corner that's wider, but if you wanted to do that, you had to get your camel down on its knees, and then you had to pull really hard, and somebody behind pushed, and if you really, really strained, and the camel kind of shuffled through, you could finally get him through the Eye of the Needle gate. Have you ever heard that before? It's completely made up. They made it up in the 19th century. It's not true. Like, there was no gate like that. That doesn't even make sense. And it doesn't make sense when you see their reaction. Jesus says, you know what? It's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into heaven. And the disciples don't say, oh, yeah, I've seen that before. It's really hard. Man, backed up traffic. I was waiting on that camel to get through. I wanted to get in the gate. Like, they don't say that. They're astonished. Because Jesus is talking about a camel the largest animal around that region, getting through the eye of a needle. They're astonished. Their question is, then how can anyone be saved? Because it's impossible to earn your way to God. It's impossible to earn your way to salvation. And Jesus tells them, hey, look, here's the deal. With man, it's impossible. With man, it's impossible. He, he, it's not just about being rich or not. It's like all people, there's no path here to earn your way to God. But then he gives us some hope. He says, oh, but with God, all things are possible. Jesus has come to take care of that. There's no hope for us. It's an impossible task. We can't get back to God, but Jesus is going to bring us there. He's going to do it because of his death on the cross. So we don't earn eternal life through obedience, but... We do. Obedience is a big deal for us. We do respond to the gifts of eternal life with obedience. This is a biblical truth that's all throughout our scripture. You guys remember Moses was given the law. He was given what we call the Ten Commandments. Here's the law. Do you remember when Moses was given that law? When the people of God were given the law, the Ten Commandments to obey? It was after God delivered them out of Egypt. It was after that. They were oppressed, enslaved in Egypt, crying out to God, and God sends Moses all the plagues, gets them out of Egypt, gets them to the Red Sea, delivers them again, rescues them at the Red Sea, and then after that is when God gives them the Ten Commandments. Because why? Because God doesn't look at us and say, hey, yeah, you want deliverance, you want rescue, then you need to do all these things, and then I'll rescue you. No, God says, I'm going to rescue you because I'm good, because I'm great, because I'm glorious, because I'm powerful. And then when I rescue you, you're going to respond by living this way. The Ten Commandments themselves were given to respond to God's deliverance by living according to his law. And the gospel is the same thing. It's Jesus has rescued us. He has delivered us. When you see what Jesus has done, we respond to this gift that we couldn't earn. It's called eternal life. We respond to it right here and now by obeying him, by obeying his commandments, by listening to his voice, by following him. So that has to guide us as we look at this passage. It's somewhat confusing on the surface. We don't earn eternal life through obedience, but we do get to respond to this gift of eternal life with our obedience. So you get that? Okay, we know that it's not what Jesus is teaching. Now we can go into the heart of this, the shocking fact that Jesus is going to say, here's what you need to do, man. You need to sell everything that you own, give it away to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. That's shocking enough, if we're honest. Like, the demands that Jesus is making here are so high on this guy. 
And we're like, wow, look at what Jesus is expecting. Look at what Jesus is demanding. Look at what Jesus is asking of this guy in that moment. But what, what may be even more shocking is the man decides too much to ask. I'm going to stay with my possessions. And he walks away sad. And if you're sitting there with the disciples watching all this thing, you're kind of shocked because you watch Jesus let him walk away. Doesn't go, okay, well, let me take it back. Let me, no. He lets him walk away. And it's shocking. And it's shocking to us because we don't like to think of a God who makes demands of us. We don't like to approach it that way for the most part. We like to think about his love and his forgiveness and this, how he's given us this chance to go to heaven when we die. And those are all true and those are all good things. But like if you read your Bible, if you've been with us through this journey through Matthew, you see that Jesus is constantly making demands of his people, that his bar for us is very, very high. His expectations are a higher level of righteousness, a higher level of obedience. You've heard it said, don't murder. I say if you have anger with someone in your heart, then you're committing murder. Like he's calling us higher. His demands on us are high. We don't like to think about it, but if you start thinking about what Jesus says, he looks pretty demanding. If you want to follow me, you got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Oh, if you don't hate your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your wife, or even, your, even your children, you can't be my disciple. These are demands that Jesus makes of his followers, and it's so tempting to dismiss it. We look at this passage, and there's two really, there's a lot of things you can do with this story, but there's two main ways that people kind of approach it. And one is, we look at this and we go, wow, Jesus wants us to sell everything. We should all get rid of everything. We shouldn't own anything. We need to get rid of everything. We just need to trust Jesus for everything. We just need to live destitute, nothing to our name. Let's sell everything and do that. That's one way you can approach this passage. It's not that popular in America, just to be honest. It's not... Not a big thing. Not a lot of books in the bookstore about that path. But that is one way you can approach it. The other approach is to look at it and go, okay, Jesus is talking to this guy, but he's not talking to me. And there's an element that that is true. Jesus doesn't demand this of everybody. Zacchaeus comes and he's been cheating people and stealing from people as a tax collector. And Jesus comes to his house and Zacchaeus repents and says, you know what, I'm going to give half of what I own to the poor. And Jesus responds and says, you know what? Salvation has come to your house today. So Jesus doesn't demand Zacchaeus sell everything like this guy. And so what Jesus says to this rich young man, this rich young ruler in this story right here, is not a blanket statement that every Christ follower has to follow. And we all have to do that. The correct interpretation is to say, here's what Jesus said to him. And it's not necessarily what everybody has to do because you have all these other stories in the Bible where they didn't leave everything. They didn't, they didn't abandon everything. They didn't sell everything. But here's the problem with that. Is that all of a sudden we find a lot of comfort in that, don't we? Oh, man, I'm so comforted by the fact that Jesus is not asking me to sell everything that I own and give it away. Think about this. If you find a lot of comfort in that, Like, you really find a lot of comfort in the fact that Jesus is not asking you and me to give up everything to follow him, then it may be a sign that you would be the person that he would ask to do that. If you, man, I'm so glad he's not asking me, because I don't know how I would make it, then maybe you're the person he would ask. Maybe that's the demand that he would make. 
And when you look at our Bibles, when you look at Jesus, man, I, I want us to lean into this. I want us to press in. I want us to stop and think about the fact that Jesus is making a pretty big demand of this guy, and he's willing to let him walk away if he's not willing to meet it. And Jesus makes demands of us. He calls us higher. And so I want us to, I want us to look at that. Now, it's going to be like challenging, and I think it's good. I think we should wrestle with this a little bit. I think we should ask ourselves hard questions when we see a story. Don't dismiss it. Oh, that's just about that guy. That was his problem, not my deal. What are the demands Jesus makes of all of us that we can see in this story? And I think the first thing that we can start with is that Jesus demands that we trust him alone. This is Jesus' like fundamental demand on people is that they put their trust in him alone. If we're talking about salvation, which is the context of where this conversation started, then that's where we need to, we, we need to think about. Like, you can't trust in your own ability to be good, your own list of good deeds you're doing, your family's membership in a church, your attendance at anything. You can't trust in the mission trips. And the more, like, you, there's no list here. We can't trust in our own efforts to earn our way. We have to put our trust in Jesus and what he's done and only in what he's done. Every now and then we get to baptize people here at our church, and I love the fact that as we baptize people, we ask them two questions, basically. And the first question is, do you have any hope for life here and life eternal apart from Jesus? And it's not a trick question. The answer is no. I don't have any hope without Jesus. And the second question is, are you placing your faith and trust in Jesus and only in Jesus, what he accomplished on the cross for your salvation? And the answer is yes, because that's where... Jesus calls us. He demands that we don't trust in anything else, that we trust in only him for our salvation. But here's the deal. In this story, it's even bigger than that. Why does this guy not let go of his possessions? Why is he willing to walk away? Why is he going to hold on to his wealth and his possessions instead of following Jesus? Well, I think that it's safe to say that he's finding his security in those things, that he's trusting in those things. And I think it's safe to say that because that's what I do. If we're honest, that's what we all do. If I have enough in my bank account, if I have enough things over here, if I have enough possessions, then I will have security. I'll be prepared for the future. And we, it's so easy to shift our trust from Jesus to all this stuff that I have that I've accumulated. I've worked hard for this. I've earned this stuff, and it's going to provide for my future. The problem is that is something messes with it, and we freak out. Something happens, oh, I got a little extra cash, I'm saving over here, this is going to prepare me, this is going to give me security, and something happens, another car breaks, and there's all that money gone, and I'm like, oh no, what am I going to do now? It's so easy to try to find our security in things like this, and it's just so easy to see that in this guy. When Jesus asked him to give it up, he's like, well, then, then how will I be taken care of? What Jesus calls us, what he demands from his followers is we trust him alone. Doesn't mean you got to get rid of this stuff. Doesn't mean that stuff is evil. Doesn't mean that it's bad. It becomes evil and bad when we start to let it own us instead of us own it. And the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil, not just money. It's not, not inherently evil, but when we love it, when we trust it, <laughs> we put our, find our security in what we have rather than in Jesus to take care of us, then we've shifted away from what God has called us to. He demands that we trust him and trust him alone. And then he goes even further. Jesus demands that we treasure him above all else. 
That's the demand that Jesus makes on his followers, that you would treasure and value and pursue and worship him above everything else. That's why he sets this guy up. Don't murder. Don't lie. Honor your father and mother. All those commandments. Treat your neighbor the way you treat yourself. Like all those things. He doesn't point him directly to this command, no other gods before me, because he's about to point it out when he asks him to give up his stuff. Whatever you treasure more than Christ has become your God. Whatever you value and treasure and pursue more than you do Jesus has become your functional savior. This guy found his security, most likely, in the things that he owned. This is going to provide for my future. But he also probably found his significance and his satisfaction in those things, which is what an idol looks like in our lives. That if I have enough stuff, and we know that he was rich, he was young, he was, he was powerful, he was a ruler. We know all this from the accounts in the, in the different gospels. So he had all this significance tied up in that. This is what made him important. This is what gave him status in society. All these things allowed him to be a person that was important. His satisfaction, man, I have these things and I pursue these things and I want these things and I know that if I chase after these things and I get these things, here's what it'll do. It'll give me satisfaction. It'll fill me up. It'll make me happy. And Jesus is saying, here's the demand. No, you gotta, you gotta treasure me above everything else. You, you, you can't wander away from me as your treasure and think that you're gonna find security and significance and satisfaction in anything else because guess what? It never will. We, we do it all the time, right? We stop trusting Jesus or we stop pursuing him because we think if I have this, then I'll really have a purpose. If I go get this over here, then I'll really have satisfaction. It'll really bring me joy. And we go pursue that, and it doesn't satisfy us the way we thought it would. In fact, it just leaves us wanting more. And Jesus' demand is, no, treasure me above all else. I love the way Clint started us today reading that passage, Psalm 145. That's, that's how you do that, is that you meditate on his goodness and his greatness and his glory, and then the things of the world, they start fading away. They lose their value when you see how ultimate his value is. And Jesus demands that of his followers. He demands we trust him alone. He demands that we treasure him above all else. But here's the deal, guys. It's not just about giving up stuff. Don't miss what Jesus is calling this guy to and calling us to because of the high demand that he's asking. Because what Jesus is calling him to is to follow him. Jesus demands that we follow him, not just give up things. Guys, we got to get that. I remember as a high school student, like, I remember wrestling with that a whole lot. I felt like God was calling me in the ministry, and I was resistant to that because of this one idea. I thought, if I surrender and I decide to follow Jesus that way, he's going to take away all my fun stuff. He's going to take away everything I really want. It was just this immature, faulty view of God and his calling on our life. And Jesus is not just trying to eliminate things from our lives, just, hey, get rid of this stuff. No, Jesus is after followers. He wants us to follow him. And so what he says to this guy is, hey, go sell what you possess, give it to the poor, I'll give you treasure in heaven, and come follow me. That's his goal for us. He wants us to follow him. So don't get distracted by what he's having to give up. Focus in on what he's being called to. He's given an opportunity to follow Jesus. 
There's some commentators that think that he was going to be invited in to be one of the disciples. The 12 is going to become a baker's dozen, and he's going to be the 13th. Like some disciples, some commentators think that's what he was being called into. He's being invited in to be a follower of Jesus, and it's going to cost him some things. And that's when you really understand what Jesus is doing here. That's when you understand that his demand is that he get, we give up things that will keep us from following him. That's when this becomes a story about this rich young ruler, and it becomes a story about us. For this guy, he valued his possessions, he valued, valued his wealth, his bank account, so much that he wouldn't follow Jesus. It was getting in the way of him following Jesus. He was treasuring that above Jesus. He was trusting in that above Jesus. His significance, his security, his satisfaction was found in his possessions instead of Jesus. And Jesus is calling him to get rid of that stuff because it's keeping him from following. So here's the question I think every single one of us need to wrestle with. What in your life is keeping you from following Jesus the way that Jesus calls us to follow him? For this guy, it was money and possessions. Maybe that's for you too. Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's a future. Maybe it's a relationship. There's all these good things in our lives. Even family can become something that we value and treasure and look to for our security more than we do Jesus, and then becomes an idol problem, and it's getting in the way of us following him the way he's calling us to follow him. So what is that for you? That's the question. Like, you need to find some quiet time, some, some, some time to really think through that and go, is there something in my life that is keeping me from following Jesus because he may be asking you to give it up? Because Jesus demands that we give up things that are keeping us from following him. Maybe he's not going to call you to give it up, but he's going to definitely call you to readjust your priorities. How are you using your time, your resources, your, your abilities, all those things. This, this guy had all this stuff. It was keeping him from following Jesus. And Jesus says, you need to get rid of it. And he's unwilling to do so. You guys remember the story of Jacob and, Jacob and Esau? In, the, in Genesis, in the Old Testament, the two twins. Esau was born first. And, I mean, just like minutes apart, but Esau was born first. And because he was born first, he gets the birthright. And, and that doesn't mean a lot to our culture, but in that culture, it meant everything. Like, he gets all the wealth. He gets all the, the spiritual blessings. He gets to be the leader of the family. He gets the birthright. He's the blessed child because he was born first. And his brother Jacob wanted that birthright. And Esau comes in from hunting one day. Esau comes in, and he's starving. He's been a hunting. He's starving. He wants some food. And Jacob's sit, sitting there, and he's made a big old pot of stew. And Esau says, hey, man, give me that stew. And Jacob says, oh, yeah, you want the stew? I'll give you that stew. All you got to do is give me your birthright. And you're like, what is in this stew? Like, at some point, it's like, maybe in the Hebrew, that really means Texas chili or something. Like, that can't be just stew. Like, nobody sells their birthright for stew. But chili? Okay. I'm going to have to think about it. Anybody like, show of hands if you put beans in your chili. Admit it. Some people say you're not Texan. I say they're wrong. Like beans are good. I eat chili without beans. I eat chili with beans. I eat chili with rice sometimes because my parents grew up too close to Louisiana. But like I like chili. But I don't like chili this much. And Esau trades his whole birthright. And we, it's hard to describe how much he gave away in that moment. And we look at that story and we go, Esau was ridiculous. Man, that's dumb. And we ought to look at this story exactly the same. 
Like, we don't sometimes, though. We're like, well, yeah, he had a lot of money. He probably had a lot of stuff. It's hard to give that stuff up. Like, that's not even practical. No, he traded eternity with Jesus for his possessions that won't last. It's, it's ridiculous. So we, we ought to look back at, like, if you just stop, if you can just back up and kind of look at the Esau-Jacob story and put this context and be like, okay, so he's got some possessions and he's got some money and Jesus is holding out eternity. And you're like, I don't know, if I really sit back and weigh the two, I'm like, no, I don't think so, Mr. Rich Young Ruler. I'm not picking this. Eternity versus some temporary possessions. Man, so many times we, oh no, I'll find my satisfaction over here. I'll find true meaning and significance over here. This is, man, if I have this over here and I can hold on to it, I'll really have security. It doesn't work that way. Jesus is demanding that we give up things that keep us from following him. Okay. Everybody okay? You need some hope? Your faces are telling me you need hope. There's hope in this passage. Let me start with this. Jesus demands things of us for our benefit and because he loves us. When we say Jesus makes demands, we have the negative connotation because we think of all these demanding people like this is bad. No, here's what Jesus is doing. He's not doing this to control us. He's not doing this because I'm just going to take away all their fun. No, Jesus makes demands on us that are always for our benefit and because he loves us. Whatever he asks you to give up is for your benefit. Jesus knows the rich young ruler will never really find security or significance or satisfaction apart from him. And he knows that about you and me too. We can chase that all day and it will never, ever satisfy us. It never will. I, mean, you, I like country music. But when I say that, I mean like real country music, Waylon Willie and the boys, like that's what I like. The new country music and I, we're not really even friends. But I heard a song the other day and it caught my attention because he was singing about happiness. And he's like, money can't buy you happiness. And then he said this, but it can buy you a boat. And then when you, it can buy you a truck to pull that boat. And I was like, well, he's not wrong. But that happiness is fleeting. I mean, as soon as he bought a boat, oh wait, I need a truck. Like, you need something else. It'll never, Jesus knows these things that we pursue and we treasure and we value and we trust in will never give us what we're asking them to give us. And so he demands that we leave those things behind and treasure him and trust him instead. And it's always for our benefit. Mark, when he records a story, he adds a phrase in here that Jesus said that I absolutely love. I want you to see it. Mark 10, 21, it'll be on the screen. It says, and Jesus looking at him, loved him. Looking at this guy, and he, and he loved him. And so he said this, hey, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus demands this of him because he loves him. Because he wants what's best for that guy. These things will never satisfy you. These things will never give you what you're looking for. So he looks at him and he loves him enough to demand he follow him this way. That's the call of Jesus on our life. There's hope in that, that his demands are for our benefit because he loves us. And there's hope in this. The demands that Jesus makes will never be a sacrifice. 
you got to love Peter because he's always willing to say something. And he's always willing to ask that first question. And he watches, watches the guy walk away. And then Jesus says, man, it's really hard for rich people to get in heaven. Easier for camels to go through the eye of the needle. They're astonished, all that. And then Peter says, hey, what about us, though? Hey, <laughs> hey, we kind of left everything. What's in it for us? Which, you know, to some degree he did. They left their boats. They left their nets. I mean, they were not good at fishing, so I don't know how much that really gives them credit. But, like, they did leave those things. And Peter says, hey, what about us? And Jesus doesn't immediately rebuke him for the question. In fact, he encourages him. And then I think next week you'll see this parable where Jesus points out some of the flaws in that thinking. But here's what he says, verse 28. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, that, just so you know, that's not for us. That's for them. You, we're not going to do that. Verse 29, though, Jesus makes it for everybody, expands it. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus says, when you give up things to follow me, you're not making a sacrifice, you're investing in your future. You're storing up treasure in heaven where the moths can't get it and the rust won't touch it. So when we give up things, it's not a sacrifice. Jack and Haley, we've sent them out recently. They're at training. They're going to move to the Middle East. We're all in on this, and we see that, and we know that they're having their first baby over there, and we look at that and go, look at all the sacrifices, and here's what Jesus says. Oh, no, 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 no. They'll receive a hundredfold. They'll be blessed beyond measure for the sacrifice that they're making. It's not even a sacrifice. It's an investment. I was with a friend of mine named Aaron Clayton one time. We were in a city in China, up in the north part of China, and we were visiting some missionaries trying to set up some Igo trips up there. And while we were there, the missionary team, there were like 20 missionaries in the city in China, and they were getting together for a team meeting one night. And they didn't do that very often because of security problems. But one of their team members was having a birthday. And so they all got together, and AC and I got to sit in on that meeting. And it's, it felt as much as an, like an outsider as I've ever been on a meeting with a missionary. Because what they had was a family party that night. They had all taken time that week to find a gift that meant something to the one that has a birthday. That's not an easy thing to do in a remote part of China, to find something that they'll actually want and like. They found gifts that were meaningful, that told stories and all this. And there was so much joy and so much celebration in that room. And I was thinking about all they had left behind, their family, their lands, their comfort zone, all the things. And I was thinking about this verse, a hundredfold. When you give up things for Christ, you don't make sacrifice. You invest in his kingdom. This is the best way for us to live. This is why he calls us. This is why he demands this of us. One last picture of hope for us. This may feel impossible. Wow, look at all I got. I got to treasure him. I trust him. I got to stop. I got to, feels impossible. And so we remember that it's made possible because of Jesus. With man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. The demands that Jesus, of Jesus are made possible by him and through him. He's not asking you to do anything that he hasn't done. And because he's done it, he will give you the ability to do it as well. I love this verse, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. 
For you know, or you remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, look at it, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, took on flesh, humbled himself, obedient to the Father, even to the point of death on a cross, so that you and me, by his poverty, we might become rich for all eternity, heirs to the kingdom, family of God. Because he was the rich young ruler we needed, who gave all of that away, took on flesh, took our place on the cross, we can trust him more than anything else. And we can treasure him above everything else. And when we do, we find that that's life. That's the way it's meant to be. And then we follow him and we glorify him in the process. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for the truth that's in your word and It says in your word that all of it is profitable for us, that it's profitable for teaching, and it's also profitable for correction. It's even profitable for rebuking at times. And there's there's hard things that you've said in the scriptures. But there's always hope because of what you've done for us. It isn't up to us, God. It's not about trying harder. It's about trusting you more. And so, God, I pray that today's truth from your word will pull us closer to you, will pull us into a place where we're following you more. Even if it costs us some things, even if we need to get rid of some things, even if we need to arrange some things completely differently, that we'll trust you enough to do that and we'll treasure you enough to pursue you above everything else. And, God, that you'd be glorified in that as you lead us and as you guide us and as you provide for us like no one else can. And we thank you for that in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.